We want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. And if you are returning, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate you being willing to like and share and subscribe and join us each week for the next episode. If this is your first time, thank you for joining us. There's a lot of resources available to you at lovefirst.org, and we would invite you to visit that webpage. The purpose of the Love First podcast is to ignite courageous conversations where the gospel meets real life. And what we're aiming for is not just that we would kind of love better, but we would have a revolution in our understanding of love that would equip us to love God and love our world better. So today, our theme is how to become a responsible Christian citizen. Love first, I know. So when we think of that, there's a lot of passages of Scripture that our mind might be drawn to. We might look at several examples in the Hebrew Scriptures of uh, the people of Israel being guided in how they respond in their political situation. We might fast forward to some famous New Testament passages like Romans 13 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul and others try to guide us in how do we understand our place as citizens of the kingdom of heaven who also live as citizens of whatever nation, tribe, or people group we're a part of on earth. One of the great challenges of life is trying to figure out how to participate as a citizen in my own location, my own locale, while maintaining an understanding of my identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I would like to suggest that maybe we need a different starting point. Uh, The starting point, I think, will be very helpful for us because if we fast forward to how do we handle the next law that's handed down from the Supreme Court? Or how do we respond to the next election that's in front of us? We find ourselves being reactionary. And quite often, in those cases, people do not see the real impact of being a follower of Christ. So if we could step back to another starting point, I'd like for us to start with the week after the resurrection. You see, we're actually in that week. We've just celebrated Easter, and uh, for a lot of us, we think, wow, the story is over. Uh, Jesus raised from the dead, and and, uh, he did it, and we celebrate. Well, let's bear in mind that for Jesus, the story was not over at all. Now, let me illustrate this. This is incredibly powerful. In each of the four tellings of the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In each of them, there is some form of a commission uh, to the disciples. And this is after the resurrection. 
So uh, one of the more famous ones is in Matthew 28, where uh, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is followed up, of course, in Mark's gospel with his telling of that commission. And then in Luke's gospel and even in John. Now, in Luke's gospel, there's a fascinating little note. And that is in chapter 24, where Jesus actually connects everything that preceded the resurrection with everything that would follow. He said, now, bear in mind, everything that's happened is according to Scripture. So him being handed over to the authorities, um, everything that went into the mocking, the whipping, the trial, the deception, the betrayal, the denial, and even the crucifixion, all of those things, according to Jesus, were prophesied in advance and the resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. Because in Greek and English, the very next word is and. And. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all the nations. And Jesus says, and you are witnesses of these things. Now that little word and is important because what Jesus is saying is this. Everything that led up to the resurrection and everything that follows the resurrection is one story. It's not two stories. It's not the climax of the story, then then kind of the epilogue. No, Jesus is saying the resurrection isn't the ending of something. It's the launching of something. So what in the world is that something? The Apostle Paul tells it this way. He says that on the cross, God made him who had no sin, that would be Jesus, to become sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. If you back up just a few verses, he says in verse 17 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. We've noted in the counting of the days of Holy Week that Saturday is day seven. And Jesus is still in the tomb. All the accounts are careful to note that he raised on the first day of the following week, on Sunday, what we call the Lord's Day. And that's because that day represents the first day of the new creation. God is doing something new. Jesus said that it's actually better if I leave. His disciples could not imagine that to be possible. But he said, you see, if I leave, then the Holy Spirit comes. So what Jesus would have us hear in all of his message is, what I came to do is launch the new creation to start something new, and that my role in this is not the climax. It's the beginning, 
and that the ultimate victory is the redemption, the reconciliation, the restoration and renewal of all creation in the image of God. So, listen carefully to some words that are in what we call that great commission that give us clues as to what Jesus was anticipating. So, first, we'll look at that Matthew 28, when Jesus said to them, to go make disciples of all nations. Making disciples is in the imperative. So the idea there is that we would proactively call the world to be followers of Jesus. The word nations in in the Greek language is the root word for our word ethnicities. So Jesus had in mind all ethnicities. Now, when he says to go to all the nations, right, that we're to take the gospel to all the nations, to all the ethnicities of the world, he says what we're looking to do is to immerse ourselves in the nations of the world where they live in real time. And then notice he says, baptizing them. So the idea is that the world would be, in essence, reimmersed, not in the sense of the flood in the time of Noah, in a, in a reimmersion of in an immersion of destruction. This is an immersion of new creation, of new life. So all the ethnicities of the world are to be touched by the gospel. Now Mark includes a couple of other words that were to go into all the world, right? Go into all the world. That's our world, cosmos, cosmos, all the world, and preach to every creature, okay? So now let's think about that. The word cosmos could absolutely have a geographic vision in the reach of where the gospel would go. You're, you're, you're to go to every point of the globe, right? But more than that, the word cosmos often represents the structures, the citizenry, the institutions of the world. And this is important for good or for evil. So the institutions of the world can be beneficial and the institutions of the world can be very negative in their impact. But you see, what Jesus is saying is when you think of going into all the world, we're not just talking about a geographic movement. We're talking about moving into all of the institutions of the world. And then when he uses the phrase creature, this is used very often in the New Testament to represent all of creation. But specifically in this case, it would represent, I think the best term would be populace. Go to all the population of the world. So let's put this in motion. Through Jesus' resurrection, he launches new creation. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that on the cross, Jesus' body became the birthplace of a new humanity. So this new humanity is launched. This new creation is launched. And then the role of the disciples in every generation is to geographically go to every point on the planet, but then to immerse ourselves in every ethnicity, every institution, 
and every populace. So let me, let me run through that again. To go to everywhere in the world geographically, but to immerse ourselves in every ethnicity, immerse ourselves in every institution, and immerse ourselves in every populace. So what would that actually mean? Well, that would mean that the gospel is nimble, that the gospel is transportable, that the gospel is not locked in to one cultural expression, that there's a sense in which the gospel is not bound by an economic system. It's not bound by a governmental system. In fact, the gospel can move and live and thrive in any system, any institution, any tribe, any people, any language, anywhere in all the world. Well, that would sound simple enough, but Jesus takes it a step further. What we understand then is the gospel launches a new creation which is identified with Christ. There was a famous theologian. His name was Andrew Tozer. He's known in his writings as A.W. Tozer. And one of the things he describes that I love the way he describes it is that wherever the gospel went in the world, communities rose up, listen carefully, and crystallized around the Christ. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Crystallized around the Christ. So the identity of Jesus, as people begin to attach to Jesus, then they themselves take on the, the, the life structure, the atomic structure of Jesus. We would say today the DNA of Jesus. But guess what? Then every community of those people would also take on the DNA of Jesus. So Jesus at the center is changing the identity of individuals who become communities crystallized around Christ, who then become a community identified with Christ, and everywhere they go, they are sharing the Christ. You say, well, that sounds simple, but has it been that easy? Oh, no. Because we know that everywhere the gospel has gone, there have been challenges, right? So I want us to take a few moments and think about that. When we think about where the gospel has gone and the way that people imagine the gospel, it hasn't always been this group of people or community of people that looked just like Christ. Think about this. When we think about the gospel, here's questions that I've heard people ask, and I've read it in my research. Isn't Christianity the problem for the world in the last 2,000 years? Wasn't it the Christians that sponsored the Crusades that murdered tens of thousands? Isn't Christianity the world's worst defender of human rights, supporting regimes that colonized lands, raped people groups of their resources, destroyed cultures, enslaved, abused, and oppressed people the world over? 
Isn't Christianity responsible for supporting governments and organizations that hate on the marginalized, destroy the ecosystem, and cover over the most heinous systems of child abuse? Isn't Christianity the incubator of religious and political scam artists who lay claim to the faith that they may deceive and abuse the populace for their own gain? How could anyone imagine Christianity as being anything other than an oppressive system that will ultimately bless the world with its imminent demise? Good grief, that went dark in a hurry. No, it didn't go dark in a hurry. You understand that some of the questions that I've just read have been in some version or another asked since the second century A.D. In reading the history of Christianity by Dr. Justo Gonzalez, you can see these questions in some form being raised throughout the history of the faith. So no, it well, maybe the podcast went dark in a hurry, but these questions have been raised the whole time. Why is that? Why is that? Because you see, the truth is that maybe we should talk about the tale of two Christianities. Because truthfully, the symbols may be shared by those who bless and curse the world. One of the examples that stands out in my mind is the slave trade, the North Atlantic slave trade. The first 20-some slaves to arrive in Jamestown, the colony of Jamestown, their journey originated in the port of Luanda, Angola. The ship on which they were loaded was named the San Juan Bautiste, the St. John the Baptist. So you see, the ships that arrived with gleaming white sails, with crosses on them that brought missionaries a century earlier and brought the good news, not forced baptisms at the beach before they were enslaved, but brought the good news and, and where people begin in that region of the world to embrace the gospel. This is why some of those early slaves that were on that ship and arrived in Jamestown had names like Pedro and Maria and Anthony. These were people that were already followers of Christ. They had seen ships with sails, with crosses, a symbol of the faith, and it brought them good news, only to have those ships followed up with colonizers and slavers flying the same sail with the same symbol. And when they wrote to their counterparts in Europe, who surely don't understand this is happening, they can't know that this is happening, they either received a deaf ear or those very people supported the slave trade themselves. When I think of that example, I think it illustrates clearly the tale of two Christianities. 
to where the symbols of the cross, baptism, communion, the holy days of Christmas and Easter, the familiar gathering places such as church buildings with architectural designs that are similar and familiar furnishings, the traditions such as hymns, readings, prayers, ministries, heroes of the faith that instruct and inspire creeds and practices of the faith. The truth is that these two versions of Christianity, those that proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and bring liberation and freedom and good news, those same symbols are used by those who bring oppression and destroy liberty and destroy life. The tale of two Christianities. So, who are we to be as citizens in our day and time if we're going to crystallize around Christ in recognition that the other tale of Christianity that's already been told and being told and being experienced is still alive? How do we handle this? What do we do? Well, one thing we have to be clear about is that these two versions of Christianity cannot peacefully coexist. Those who would crystallize around Christ will never be able to make peace with those who would abuse the faith for their own gain. It's not possible. It's not advantageous for the gospel. It doesn't help a soul. So how do we do this? How do we become citizens who immerse the world in the good news of Jesus Christ without losing our place in the current world in which we Live. How do we make these kinds of decisions? Because the beauty of this is that throughout the history of the church, for every enslaver who blasphemed the good name of Jesus, there were abolitionists who gave their lives to not just free the enslaved, but to end slavery. For every political figure that would claim the faith to get votes, there were a million silent servants who every single day went about the business of serving their communities, serving their fellow citizens because of their love for Christ. For every person that would abuse the poor, there was a Mother Teresa who would give her life for the poor. So one of the things we must do to become responsible Christian citizens is we actually have to make a choice first about our identity. Now, I will give you an example for myself because I live in the United States of America. So I am not an American Christian. That would be the reverse order. 
that would inadvertently indicate that my first allegiance is to my citizenship as American and my second allegiance is to Christ. No, I am a Christian who is a citizen of the United States of America, which means that my allegiance and my identity is to Jesus Christ. And that my allegiance in this country is always secondary to my allegiance to Jesus Christ. But would this not also be the same for anyone who comes to Christ anywhere? I've heard it said that a Christian in America has more in common with any Christian anywhere else in the world than they would have with a fellow citizen in their own country for whom Christ is not yet the Lord of their life. I believe that is true. So when you think about the history of the faith and all of the people that we have depended on for inspiration and instruction and guidance, you do realize they are from all over the globe. Some of the greatest scholars in history have come out of uh, nations and obscure people groups from every continent. So actually, as a citizen of heaven, I am a citizen of the world first. I am a citizen with all the people of humanity first. And then I am a citizen in my local context. Now, I want to give you an example of this that I think emerges from the coronavirus COVID-19 experience. One of the questions has been, how do we think about a nationwide lockdown, right? And there's a lot of questions about this. Some people would advocate it, and they advocate it from many different vantage points, right? Not just political, not just economic, but also medical, right? Some people acknowledge that there's places that are more rural than others, and there are population centers like New York City or L.A. or even in Atlanta that you, you would think to yourself, well, people are closer together, they're in certain circumstances, so maybe a lockdown in one place would make sense, a lockdown in another place wouldn't make sense, and they have history on their side. Because if you go back and you read 50 essays in the influenzaarchive.org, influenzaarchive.org, and you read 50 essays of 50 cities, you will note the same discussion took place in the 1918-1919 pandemic with the great influenza. It was the same discussion, same questions, same wonderments, and lessons learned from that tell us that they have history on their side when they're asking these questions is a nationwide lockdown the only way to protect the citizenry from the coronavirus and COVID-19? Now, given that, we had a surprising development this week. Now, not surprising to everyone, but somewhat surprising because what hit the news was that the Smithfield Smithfield Foods, which is a Virginia-based company that has a huge pork production plant in Sioux City, Iowa, or, or South Dakota, Sioux City, South Dakota, 
became a massive coronavirus COVID-19 hotspot. How did this happen? You have a city whose total population is 200,000 people. It's in South Dakota with a total population of just under a million. It, it definitely counts as rural United States. But what happened was that a decision was made to let citizens make their own decisions, to acknowledge their freedom and their responsibility, and to not have a lockdown. Now, a lot of people disagreed with it, and a lot of people supported it. But what happened was there was an infection in this meat packing plant in which in an employee pool of 3,700 people, suddenly there were 300 infected and in, that, in that group, 300. They had to shut down the whole plant. Now, on top of that, Smithfield Foods is the largest pork producer in the world. This particular plant is producing 18 million units of pork per day, per day. So this directly impacts the food chain. It impacts all the farmers that produce in order to supply that food chain, right? There are a lot of factors involved here, and suddenly it looks like, oh, we've just made the biggest mistake in history that could cost people their lives. And this has also created political disagreement in the state. Now, bear in mind, the political disagreement is within one party of, 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 of uh, one political party, but there's disagreement. And part of the reason is because it has to do with federal, state, and local citizenship responsibilities. I thought it was interesting that Rapid City, South Dakota mayor, Steve Allender, put it this way. There are no political winners in this pandemic. You have to decide on which side of the argument you're going to lose. The one that was too cautious or the one that was too reckless. I'll be honest with you. When I read Mayor Allender's quote, I thought, I think that's what most of us are feeling. I think that's what most of us are feeling. Are we being so cautious that the economy will crater and will never recover? That people will lose their jobs, their insurance, their homes? Or if we do reopen segments of the economy that we believe are essential for recovery and it costs us lives, how could we be so calloused toward human life, the medical community on the front line, the world as a whole? Notice how Mayor Allender stated it. You have to decide on which of the side of the argument you want to lose. It is difficult. Citizenship decisions are not always easy. They are hard. The truth is, we actually, as a national citizenry, now think about this, we actually want our healthcare workers to go to work. Why is that? Why do we want that? knowing that they will be exposed. We already knew this before our situation ramped up to where it eventually 
just eclipse the world in cases and deaths. We already knew this would happen because we saw it in Italy. We didn't just see all the deaths of citizens in Italy. We saw the deaths of doctors and nurses. So we knew in advance that if we send our medical workers into those situations, we risk them dying. Ask yourself, why were we willing to do that? You say, well, that's the decision they made. Why didn't we lock them down and tell them they couldn't do it? Ah, you see, there's the difficulty. Because we thought to them ourselves, well, but we couldn't make it if they don't do it. We, we'll never come out of this if they don't do it. If researchers and epidemiologists and doctors and nurses and first responders, if, if they don't respond, if they don't go to work, if hospitals aren't open, if we don't convert hotels and convention centers uh, to hospital rooms. I noticed yesterday that even yesterday, converting shipping containers into many self-contained hospital rooms, what fantastic innovation. Why are we doing this? Knowing that it's risking lives. We're doing it because we understand as citizens that not every answer is binary. It, it gets messy. That when we crystallize our lives around Christ Jesus, there will always be a mixture of risk and responsibility. There will always be times when we can risk either a mistake, being misunderstood, having to seek understanding and forgiveness. This is a part of it. You see, what we actually don't need right now is know-it-alls. We don't need any know-it-alls. We don't need one person, medical, political, citizenry, we don't need any who think they know everything without anyone else's expert influence. We don't need any know-it-alls, not even one. What we need is we need people with the humility of Christ, the understanding, the long-suffering, the wisdom, the concern, the empathy, that's what we need. When the Apostle Paul tells us as citizens to live quiet lives, he doesn't mean quiet as in don't talk, don't advocate. What he means is lives that bring about, listen carefully, shalom. Lives that bring about healing, that aim toward healing. Is your life aiming toward healing? Is your rhetoric aiming toward healing? You see, no politician, no researcher, not a single one has all the answers. And what we need are people who know how to advocate and listen at the same time. So what about some practical gospel steps of moving into our communities as the people of Christ? So the way that Jesus launched this movement of his people was meant to do the following. Now, this is crazy. This is crazy, but just hang with me. Number one, 
He did mean to launch a political movement that would lead to the reconfiguration of world power. He absolutely meant to do that. You say, wait a minute, what? Yes. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation specifically says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 1, it says that the Christ, that Christ Jesus already is the ruler of the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus absolutely intends to rule the world. There is no ruler on earth that is Jesus' understudy, assistant, or co-ruler. Zip, zero, none. None. He alone is the ruler of the world. Number two, Jesus' gospel intended to invent a new socioeconomic model. Yes, the gospel intended a new socioeconomic model. You want to check it out? Go to Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. Acts 2, 44 to 47. Go to the end of Acts chapter 4. Go to the beginning of Acts chapter 6 at every single turn. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and just read it two or three times and see what you think. At every single turn, Jesus intends to invent and bring to fruition a new socioeconomic model. There is not one excuse that is, that is valid on the planet for a world that can produce as much food as we produce. There's no excuse for people to be starving. And beware, beware when you somehow validate your own plenty and invalidate the lives of those that are starving. Beware. He meant to invent a new socioeconomic model. Number three, Jesus intended his death, burial, and resurrection to be a pivot point in history. He intended that. Now, I'm not saying he came up with the whole uh, B.C. and A.D. thing. I'm not saying that. But he absolutely knew that the coming of the Christ into the world was the pivot point of history. When God became flesh in Jesus Christ, there has been no more revolutionary moment in the history of the world. Number four, Jesus meant that his ministry and his teachings and those that would follow in the tradition of the Holy Spirit would be a key moment in the shift of philosophy that the way we imagine the world would no longer be a world absent of God, but a world created by, loved by, redeemed by, and ruled by God. It would also bring about a fundamental shift in relationships. It would bring a reimagination of marriage, family, and parenting. It would bring a realignment of people with creation itself and Jesus intended for the liberation of the enslaved and the abolition of enslavement. You say, well, wow, that's quite an agenda. Yes, but not for the Lord of heaven and earth. It is now our opportunity to crystallize around his mission and take that mission to every ethnicity, every institution, and every populace in the world. So how are we going to do it? You ready? Are you ready for this? Here are the steps. Number one, prepare your mind. You got to prepare your mind. Now, I'm going to say something. I just got to put it out there. Shock media, shock media does not rely 
on their shocking verbiage in order to get you to tune in. You say, really? Nope. At the end of the day, they rely on intellectual apathy and atrophied empathy. Every person who's making a living off of shock media, off of turning people against others, off of scapegoating populations, they're, they're, the whole key to their success is not the shocking way they tell the story. The whole key is our intellectual apathy and our atrophied empathy. When we quit taking responsibility for our thoughts and we quit caring, we will tune in and listen and they will make money off of our apathy and lack of empathy. So we have got to tune up our minds. The Bible says that we are to renew our minds according to the will of God. So that's on you. That's on me. Prepare your mind. Number two, receive the truth that intent alone is not the only way to judge your actions. You must take responsibility for impact. I can't tell you the number of times with our five children <laughs> that we would uh, uh, call them out for something and say, well, I didn't mean to do that. And somewhere along the line, my wife and I invented this response. Well, if you didn't mean to do bad, did you mean to do good? Did you actually mean to do good? Which takes us to step number three. We must take responsibility for both the bad and the good of our decisions. Oftentimes, we'll take responsibility for the good decisions we make. We're not going to take responsibility for the bad decisions we make. Well, now, wait a second. If you want people to think that somehow your good decision was, was the result of your moral character and all of that, uh, then what about the bad decisions? We have to take responsibility for the good decisions we make and the bad decisions that we make. Sometimes what we need to say to someone is this, I was wrong and I'm sorry and I want you to know that I may or may not fully understand the impact of what I've done, but I want to tell you that I'm, I recognize my wrong and I'm sorry. And then as it unfolds, be a listener rather than defending ourselves, rather than blaming someone else. Listen. So often when we listen well to others, we will find a merciful response. Number four, you must structure your life for good impact. You must structure your life for good impact. Winston Churchill had an interesting way of saying this. He said, uh, plans aren't worth much, but planning is essential. Now, here's what he meant. Once you put a plan in motion, we all know there's, there's a lot of flexibility, right? Um, I can, I can uh, put in my, my Waze app that I want to go to such and such an address, and then on down the road, it points out that there's a detour or there's been a wreck or something like that, right? So plans can always be upended. Has not coronavirus and COVID-19 left an indelible imprint on our plans? Today, I saw the cutest picture on Facebook where a mother took a picture of her little son in his graduation outfit. And the truth is there are millions of students from kindergarten all the way through their doctorates who are not walking this spring because something they've worked for for year or years of their life 
They're not getting to celebrate in a formal graduation. She decided, well, we're going to have, a, have our own graduation for our little boy. Well, that's beautiful. But doesn't that illustrate Churchill's point? That plans can always be upended. But planning is nevertheless essential. Are you structuring your life to do good? Do you prepare yourself to do good? One of the coolest things that's come out of the coronavirus COVID-19 experience is how many people started about a week or two weeks in grocery shopping extra. You say, well, I thought that was bad. Oh, I didn't say hoarding. I said grocery shopping extra. What they started doing was not just shopping for themselves. They started calling neighbors and people in assisted living. They started calling elderly friends. They started calling friends that were ill. So what can I get for you? How can I do this for you? They started thinking about people that were struggling financially so they didn't just shop for themselves and they would drop off mystery grocery sacks on people's front porches. How beautiful is that? That means they're structuring their lives to do good. Can't you today ignite in your imagination a way to restructure your life to do good? You know, I mentioned this a few podcasts ago. A whole bunch of us figured out that these things are actually phones. They're not just cameras. They're not just something to text on. They're not just something to check social media. Lo and behold, my Android or my iPhone can actually make a call. How many people have started making time in their day to have voice conversations? Structure your life to do good. And finally, abandon binary formulations of problems and solutions. Abandon the binary formulation of problems and solutions. Things can't be simplified down to open the economy or don't, total lockdown or not. Nobody goes to work or everybody goes to work. Things cannot and should never be broken down to one political party is holy and righteous and the other one is completely abandoned of everything that's good. Or to imagine that our country is better than all the other countries and there's no other country that is as good as ours. How foolish and arrogant and self-serving are such binary formulations of life and they don't belong to the Christian and they don't belong to the Christian citizen. The Christian citizen can honor their place in their location without abandoning their identity in Christ. No Christian on the planet should ever exalt their personal citizenship in their home country above the citizenship of the world. We are a part of Christ who is the ruler of all the world. Our sisters and brothers on every continent matter just as much as the citizen next door. And this is how we begin to live our lives. And this is why our early sisters and brothers who were missionaries were successful, is because as they went country to country to country, they didn't carry with them the, the traditions of their home citizenship. They carried with them the new humanity that was launched by Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, we've got to be liberated so that we can live as people 
who have prepared minds, who take responsibility for our impact and take responsibility for the good and the bad decisions we make. We structure our lives for good impact and we abandon the binary formulations that divide and dehumanize and destroy. I want to close our podcast today with an illustration of this with my favorite cat. Now, not every people that know me know I'm not really a cat guy, and I, I don't really have anything against cats. They just don't do a lot to better their reputation in the world. See? Dogs, a man's best friend. Cats, ah, man, they're all over the place, right? But I had a cat that I loved, and his name was Mittens. And so, in the summer of 1997, in July, we were moving from Indiana to Atlanta, Georgia. Now, those of you that know anything about Atlanta know that it has a reputation of being called Hot Atlanta. But if you ever lived in central Indiana, Atlanta has nothing on it in the summertime. And so, it was baking hot. My daughter, our good dog, and our cat were with me in the cab of a rider moving truck. This rider moving truck, uh, I had it filled with all kinds of tools from my shop, and I was towing a trailer with a classic Bronco that I was restoring. And my wife was following us in my car, uh, in our car uh, at the time, and she had uh, three of our kids in that car, and then another friend of ours was following us. So we're all traveling from Indiana to Atlanta. Well, the cat never traveled well. He was in a, in a little cat carrier, and we weren't even out of the driveway, and he was upset. And he's reaching through the cat carrier, and he's trying to squirt my leg and scratch me, and, and he would moan a lot. He would moan a lot, and he wouldn't stop all the way out of the driveway, down the road, getting to the freeway. You could hear him in the cat carrier. He was never a good traveler. Well, the vet had given us some tranquilizers to help him. And the tranquilizers were with me. So I pop a tranquilizer in his mouth. But it doesn't work. It, it seems to amp him up even more. It got worse and worse. So about three hours into the trip, we were in south of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we had just crossed from Indiana into Louisville. And man, this was crazy. So we stop. We're going to have lunch. And everyone gets out. They go into the restaurant, except for me. And while everyone's in the restaurant, I take the cat, the cat carrier, I take him back to the car that I'm towing on the trailer, I open the windows, because he's in a cat carrier, and I put him in there. And now, his little smelly cat carrier, and his moaning, and all of that is now behind us. We go inside, I'm smiling, we eat lunch, we come back out, we get in our vehicles, and no one knows where the cat is except for me and then my young daughter who says, where's Mittens? And I said, oh, he wanted to ride in the car behind us. So we take off down the road. We're driving down the road. We're about 10 miles south of Louisville. And I look in my rearview mirror, and my wife is no longer following me, nor the guy that was following them, our friend. They're gone. So I pull off to the side of the road. I wait 10 minutes. I wait 20 minutes. Now, this is before cell phones. So we're waiting, 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 waiting. 20 minutes later, they pull up behind me. Well, I'm a little upset. Where in the world have they been? So I hop out of the truck. I'm making my way back to the car, at which point my friend Jeff runs up and meets me, and he says, Don, the cat jumped out of the truck. 
And I said, no, no, he didn't. I said, uh, he, he wasn't in the truck. He's in the car I'm, I'm towing. And I go up there and I open the door and he's gone. But Cat had torn the plastic door off the cat carrier and he is nowhere, <laughs> nowhere to be found. So I go back to my wife's car. She rolled down the window. She's crying. Her makeup is all drippy. The kids are crying and I'm like, oh my goodness. So I was like, uh, what, what happened? And she's like, Don, you wouldn't believe it. Mittens jumped out of the truck. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, we're driving along. And I see his little head come out the wing window. And the next thing I know, he just jumped. I'm like, are you kidding me? You be kidding me. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I mean, there's a cat question, right? You know, the cat question is, right? Uh, did he land on his feet? <laughs> you know? I mean, my friend was like, well, he did, then he didn't, then he did, then he didn't. And then I said, man, you need to go back to your car. So he goes back to his car. I feel horrible. My wife is crying. I cannot believe this. We searched for him everywhere. You know, I was like, oh, my goodness gracious. So I, well, these things happen, you know. So we close it all up and we drive to Atlanta. Now, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to navigate this? So, I, first of all, I thought to myself, what in the world was Mittens thinking? Well, I know part of what he was thinking. He couldn't stand being in that cat carrier. You talk about shelter in place. You talk about isolation. So, in his mind, anything was better than that. But then I wonder what he thought when he jumped and that pavement was coming at him at 70 miles an hour. I wonder if even for a fraction of a moment he thought to himself, hmm, I'm not sure this is better. The outcome was he took off. 18 months later, a lady called us from Scottsburg, Indiana. Now, if you look on a map and do the math, this is 30 miles north of where he jumped out. He had to somehow cross the Ohio River. And there he was. She called us. I think I have something that you lost. You see, he had a little veterinary tag on that had the phone number of the vet. He had walked almost 30 miles, crossed the Ohio River. This lady found him on her farm, called us. She met us in Nashville and gave us Mittens back. Now, by now, Mittens is bulked up. He's been living in the woods for 18 months. He's a little skittish of heights. And I noticed that he gave me the side eye a lot. But we had Mittens back. He lived with us for several more years. And Mittens always reminded me that binary solutions is a pretty sad way to formulate life. Because sometimes when I think I can't stand the situation I'm in and I react, I just might make things worse for me and maybe for everyone around me. What Christ teaches us as citizens with prepared minds, prepared hearts, responsible, humble, thoughtful, willing to listen, he teaches us how to immerse the world in the good news. And that is how we become responsible citizens. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Love First podcast. I pray that you'll take the time to share this with a friend, right? Like, subscribe, and share. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Love first, I know.